Welcome back, podcast listeners. Episode 47. Uh, today I'd like to continue reminiscing about the 90s in San Francisco. Uh, today I was going to try to focus on 1995. Um, as much as possible, I'm trying to be accurate with like what happened in what year, but... You know, that was a long time ago, but uh, I am uh, definitely trying, cross-referencing, whatnot, but uh, if any of my friends from back then uh, hear any of this stuff and can place it at a different time, I'd love to hear from you, just so my uh, memory can be more accurate. Um, smoking some weed, kind of getting in the mood. Um, it is so weird to sit in my studio and just talk to myself for over an hour super bizarre and uh the weed helps (laughs) i think sometimes too the weed uh as i dive into memories it can help bring out other details it has this way of like relaxing my ego so that i can just be open for the uh memory retrieval imagery uh i should say too like i have a or at least my therapist the last one thought i have a photographic memory um so when i'm recalling this stuff i've often have my eyes closed and i'm kind of watching the uh the videos (laughs) of my memory uh and hopefully they're they're accurate so in in any case uh 1995 i think pretty early in that year i moved out to uh, 8th avenue in geary to a uh two-bedroom flat with my buddy ben lovejoy who i worked with at think skateboards he was uh the only other member of the art department, just me and him back then. And uh, we had grown to be really, really good friends. And I think I think at that time he had separated from his wife and needed to find a new place to live. And uh, I was down to move out of the place I had, so we decided to get a place together. And uh, it was fun. Um, it was cool to live with Ben. He was pretty quiet and great roommate wasn't like filthy or disgusting or anything <laughs> was quite a good dude and uh he was a full-on computer guy so he brought all this fucking crazy computer equipment to the apartment and uh one of the the back bedroom was just his like office and uh it was fucking sick i remember he custom built tables and it was the very early years of the internet. Uh, I remember getting into like chat rooms and group uh, email th- threads. Um, I forget what what uh, site or whatever I was using. Could have been even America Online at that point. But I remember you could. Uh, these people would put together these batches of pornographic imagery just pictures and you could get on these mailing lists and it was like a trade thing so that each person on the list would get the batch of imagery and then each new person on the list would send imagery back to the to the group um and it got really stupid fast i remember it was like i joined one and the next day i had like 400 messages in my inbox that was all porn and i just honestly i don't think i even looked i just deleted it all and was just like holy shit that got weird fast 
Um, <laughs> but those were the days. It was fun. I felt really, really lucky that I lived with Ben and had access to the internet and all that kind of stuff back then. And uh, at the time, I think just up the street, uh, m my friend Sylvia lived. Um, she was a friend through a group of friends from the East Coast, Baltimore area. And if I remember right, and uh, she was just cool as shit. She was kind of like a hippie raver girl uh real pretty i remember her being kind of tall i could be wrong she had an awesome laugh i remember we would go and sit in a little park across from her apartment and smoke weed and just laugh and laugh and laugh like sitting on the in like the, the kids area at the park on the little rides and things <laughs> um but sylvia sylvia was fun and back then there were the the personal ads in the back of the newspaper or the uh, guardian and the weekly, the weekly newspapers. And, uh, I was doing that too. I think a lot of us were, that was a way to meet people outside of your social circle. Um, back then, you know, way before the apps and Facebook and MySpace and all of that shit, you know, you'd have a little ad in the back of the paper and it would have a, uh, I think it was like a, a voicemail box number and people could leave messages and you could go through and listen to the messages and if somebody sounded interesting you just call them back it was really simple but it was random as fuck and uh there were all kinds of like arrangements as you might expect kind of like craigslist kind of weird arrangements and uh a common one was uh, a sugar daddy um either people looking for sugar daddies or sugar daddies looking for uh people to uh look after basically and uh my friend sylvia answered an ad for a sugar daddy and uh she went and met him and he was really nice and didn't expect sex from her just wanted to hang out and uh meet her friends and just be around young people and that energy and uh, I remember hearing this and just being like, what the fuck? No way, he doesn't want to fuck you? Well, what, well, what the fuck's going on there? And she was like, well, you should meet him. You'd like him. And so uh, I remember going to, to meet this guy. His name was Vernon. Uh, Vernon Chandler, if I remember right. I don't know if he's still alive. He was pretty old when we were hanging out. And again, this was like 95. Um... And he had this really cool uh, house. It was like four stories, I think, right on a corner, just off California Street, if I remember right. Kind of a wealthy neighborhood. Uh, he was very well-to-do. He was an art collector. Um, I think he had worked as an architect for the military for most of his career. Um, but he was super nice. And uh, I remember the first time I went over there, I was with... Sylvia and one other girlfriend of hers and me and and him and within probably five minutes of being in his apartment and really tripping out on all the cool art and stuff and how nice he was and like kind of non-threatening uh he had suggested we hop in the hot tub and I was like ah oh, fuck I didn't bring a a bathing suit and all three of them laughed like they were in on some sort of joke on my, <laughs> you know, at my expense. But 
<coughs> they all admitted that none of them had bathing suits. And it was perfectly fine. And the girls were like giving me the thumbs up, like, don't worry, Mike, it's okay, don't trip. And so I was like, all right. And uh, so we went up on the roof. And he had a literally had a hot tub on the roof overlooking San Francisco. It was some super fucking fancy shit. And uh, I remember we got in the hot tub and we were having a good time. And we were like doing a like a shoulder massage in the round. Uh, <laughs> it was fucking one of those moments. And uh, I I just I liked the guy. He was cool. He wasn't being creepy at all. And he even gave me the code. Uh, to his back door that was accessible from the street that had a stairway directly to the hot tub so you could bypass the whole house if you use this back door and uh, occasionally years even after I would go up there and uh, surprise dates just you know like I'd just be in that neighborhood and be like hey you want to go hop in a hot tub and they'd be like what the fuck are you talking about I'm like no really it's only like two block two blocks away and we'd go and they'd be so like, what the fuck are you doing? Are you trying to hurt me or sketch? What What the fuck? And uh, I would take them up on the roof and there's the hot tub and there were towels always up there. And it was fucking such the hookup. God bless Vernon Chandler. Uh, but I remember too, like basically all he wanted from us or S- Sylvia, like in particular, was to, you know, know where the, the nightlife was. And I don't think he was gay. He might have been bisexual, for all I know. Um, but he uh, he just wasn't so sure where to go. And at the time, kind of the, the crackinest club and best sound system in San Francisco, at least in my opinion, uh, was this place called the King Street Garage. It was right near where the um, Caltrain main station in San Francisco is now not far from the ballpark uh, I doubt it's still there but uh, they had an incredible sound system and every Sunday they threw a party called Club Universe and it was pretty much I think the biggest gayest most uh, commercial uh, club event in San Francisco probably for a good few years there I mean we're, we're talking thousands of shirtless sweaty gay guys dancing to the best house music ever like so fucking good and uh we thought uh well i should say we would go there me and sylvia and other friends um and just be in our little like raver pack of of straight kids you know and uh we would actually go and dance on this stage all the way in the back of the club near the the big speakers and just kind of hide out and create our own little circle and try to be very respectful of the the gay scene that was happening around us you know but also being fully like thrilled by it at the same time remember there were these guys that would bring these little flags um that were probably only like i don't know one foot by two foot on the end of a wooden uh stick and usually they were if i remember right the same color and often they would be holding two of these flags. And as they were dancing to the house music, they would um, move their hands in the flags in unison with the music. And I, that might have been the only place I've ever seen uh, the gay guys flag dancing 
um, and it was cool. It was so much like how my friends would dance with uh, glow sticks at the raves, the way that they were moving their arms and kind of creating visual trails and whatnot. Um, but that Club Universe was a really neat place. Also, a lot of the bathrooms at the gay clubs were really kind of sketchy to a straight guy, um, like myself especially, and you, you kind of, that was an issue. But I remember at Club Universe, I could go and use the bathroom there without having to worry about some gay guy trying to grab my dick or something. Um, it's one of those things. It's their place, you know, but I appreciated that I didn't get fucked with there, nor did the girls. And it was this funny thing that sometimes, from what I understand, they would turn away heterosexual people. But for some reason, we never got turned away. Um, and it was super fun. And we took Vernon, and he fucking loved it. He was just so just pumped on just all the energy around him and the music and he was drinking and he was buying all our drinks and he paid for all our admissions that was kind of the the sugar daddy thing like he had all the financials covered uh, he would pay for us to get a car service or a taxi so we didn't have to walk around everywhere it was really fucking cool and uh he really didn't uh at least to me or our little group do anything like overtly creepy um, he would, I guess, I, well, I guess he did invite us to his, he would have these parties where people were encouraged to have sex. Um, and he would often film, but he would get them catered. There would be a staff there. Um, but he would invite the, all of his very, you know, beautiful young friends like, like us and, uh, just encourage us to mix it up and, yeah that's the thing i guess it could have gotten a little weird <laughs> but we we always didn't want to go i don't know it wasn't our our thing you know we were still like these kind of shy raver kids you know san francisco was kind of a a place where people who were into fringe sexuality were gathering and exploring and it was really easy to kind of get caught up in that if if you wanted to um but nobody was tripping if you didn't you know, it's just part of San Francisco at that time. Um, but I remember uh, one night in particular, uh, she brought along a friend of hers that I hadn't met before named Alexandra. Alexandra was really, really pretty. Gorgeous face, um, kind of wavy blonde hair. Um, she wasn't... I, I don't know what you would consider her now. I mean, she was curvy. I remember her hips were quite wide. Um, and she was just, she smelled so good and her skin was super soft. And in any case, like, we, we went to Club Universe and brought along Alexandra. And we had a fucking great time. I think we took some ecstasy together, of which, of course, Vernon paid for. Um, and then. At the end of the evening, probably at like 3 o'clock when we left the club, uh, me and Alexandra and Sylvia um, went back to my house to smoke some weed. And then they were going to just walk up the street to Sylvia's house and crash, but decided since they were tired and still feeling the E, they'd rather just crash at my place um, and then maybe in the morning or something get up and split. So... It wasn't long after we 
got in bed that uh, I started to feel Alexandra's hands on me, um, trying to get me hard. Uh, she started kissing me, and I started kissing her back. It started getting pretty hot. And then I felt uh, Sylvia's hands on me, too. And you might think, oh, fuck yeah. But I was friends with Sylvia. We didn't really have a sexual vibe, I didn't think. And I got kind of weirded out and just kind of stopped and uh, tried to just chill the situation out and try to, like, like humorously get us to go back to sleep. Um, But man i really wanted alexandra bad <laughs> and i i know and at, then i knew for sure that she was down too um but i knew she had some i think she was moving away if i remember correctly i think she might have even been engaged to be married um it was just a, a interesting situation so maybe just the next week um yeah i think it was just the following weekend uh sylvia had given me alexandra's number and we had been correspond we'd been talking and uh she was she asked if um she could come by my place that saturday night really late at like four in the morning because she was graduating from college that night and was going to go out with her girlfriends and get drunk and go crazy. But she really wanted to finish the night off with me. And I was like, fuck yeah, you, you bet. Like <laughs> four o'clock in the morning, no problem. Uh, and it wasn't, I think I set an alarm for like three thirty AM and got up and showered and, uh, just kind of waited, hoping that she would show up. And sure enough, right at about four o'clock in the morning, uh, I got a ring at the doorbell. Uh, I think I'd already warned uh, my roommate, or maybe he wasn't even there that night, but regardless, I opened the door and uh, I was just in my underwear, you know, it was four in the morning and I knew it was her. And uh, I was just so stoked to see her, but behind her was a black limousine and there were like three or four girls standing up in the back of the limousine, standing through the sunroof. And they applauded and screamed and hollered and whistled when I opened the door. Um, kind of as <laughs> like a salute to Alexandra, like, get yours, girl. It's, it's, your, it's your time, you know? And uh, yeah, I brought her in the house. We started making out all crazy. It was, you know, heart was racing. I hadn't had a girl kind of booty call me like that ever. And there was a few firsts that night. So we're getting into it. Um, We start having sex. At a certain point, I get her up on her hands and knees and start fucking her doggy style. And uh, not long after that, she starts coming. And she shakes and screams, kind of. It was amazing. And she kind of, I don't know, it was, it, it kind of exploded on me. It, I was like super wet when I like 
let her calm down a little bit <laughs> and pulled out. And I was like, whoa, I, did she just pee on me? Is she drunk? Like, what What the fuck? And uh, she finally calmed down and was like, oh, my God, I hope that's okay. And I was like, yeah, it's fine. Like, what? what's up? And she's like, I'm a squirter. I just fucking busted super crazy. <laughs> and I was like, fuck, that's what that was? And I remember, like, looking at her pussy, and it had kind of, like... I don't know. It had kind of like the the inside part had kind of come out a bit, you know? It was really neat. I'd never seen anything like it. And it it the fucking bed was soaked as was I. It was wild. I, I remember it feeling really good, warm, you know, and wet, but what the fuck? It was such a surprise, but it really didn't bother me at all. And uh I thought it was fucking cool, you know, just to see a girl come like that it's wild so i remember we took a shower and uh changed the sheets and fuck, we we probably fucked a few more times before she left i think at like 10 o'clock that morning and uh i never saw her again she did in fact move away she did get married i don't know if i ever knew her last name but i'll never forget her she was fucking that was some wild shit as i mentioned back then we were doing uh the uh personal ads that's how sylvia met her her uh sugar daddy and uh i was doing the same uh remember an, you could pay a little extra to have bold print at the top of your ad if you wanted like a big title and uh i had one that said uh giant in big bold print at the top and then it said like uh, single white male, 22 or whatever I was at the time, uh, seeking uh, girlfriend, whatever the fuck, interests, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, I'd get all kinds of different replies <laughs> uh, from girls, definitely people outside my usual social circles and whatnot. And uh, I remember her. You know, some of them were a little sketchy or uncomfortable. Um, most of them were cool. But I remember uh, I was living with Ben at the time. And uh, Ben was, of course, hearing all my crazy adventures. And uh, also the the bad stuff, too, you know. And he, I think he was the one that came up with this. But just like 10 minutes after a date starts or 15 whatever he would kind of just happen to show up um and if i would give him a signal he would come over and have some excuse why i needed to leave right away and go back to the apartment and you know get me out of a sticky situation so to speak um so i had this date with a girl who sounded fucking so good on the phone when i would talk to her i would get hard because uh it turns out later she told me she did uh phone sex for a living so i was like oh duh no fucking wonder um <laughs> but man she she did sound really good and she she played it uh, she didn't play herself up like uh catfishing me or anything she told me she was a big girl and she was into goth and all this stuff and i was like that's cool i'm just like this skater dude you know i'm into tattoos and shit but 
you know, art and whatever. So we might we might hit it off. So we agree to meet on a, I believe it was a Saturday afternoon at a coffee shop not far from Eighth Avenue in Gary, where Ben and I lived. Um, I would usually try to meet in that neighborhood just in case it went really well. I could just invite them over to my apartment, and that was that worked out a few times. But this time, you know, it wasn't going to work out in that way. But in any case, so I meet this girl. She had, like I say, she had said she was kind of a big goth girl. And when she showed up, she was. Uh, but kind of at a at a exponential uh, rate, kind of. Like, she was just, she was big. She was probably 350 pounds, quite tall, had, uh, like, very pale makeup on and purple lipstick. I think her hair might have been blue or purple. Uh, remember, I'm colorblind. But she was wearing all black, like a black uh, skirt and top and uh, big black boots. And I think she even had black tights on. And uh, she was just, to be honest, very, very unattractive. Uh, but she was there to meet me. And I knew I had Ben uh, to bail me out if if needed. So I invited her to sit down. Uh, I think she'd gotten a coffee and, you know, we'd already, while she was in line, I'd acknowledged that, hi, you know, I'm the person you're here to meet. So she came right over and, uh, we just started talking and I knew when she was in line that I wasn't attracted to her at all, but I saw it as just like, well, fuck, she came down here. Let's just hang out. We'll, we'll have a chat and see how things go. And uh, so we start talking and she had some really, really interesting stories and some really, really horrible shit too. Um, she had already been married once and never had sex with her husband. All he did was beat her. And so she was dealing with all kinds of trauma from that. And in fact, she was in my neighborhood for the date because she had seen her therapist just before our date, who was just up the street. And uh, she just had been through a lot and was uh, adapting and trying to survive as she went. I think we we're about the same age, uh, early 20s, and just in the San Francisco and the, the good and the bad things that come with that. Um, but I found her to be terribly interesting and found it really easy to conversate with her. And if I remember correctly, Ben did in fact show up. And by then the line for the coffee was pretty long. So he had plenty of time to get eye contact with me before he got to the register to order his coffee. And I uh, was really looking for the signal for for him to bail me out I mean he he could tell I'm sure that she wasn't the kind of girl I was gonna bring back to the apartment um and was sure I was gonna give the signal but I just never did and uh he gave me plenty of opportunity <laughs> to break up the situation but I, I didn't let him and uh he split kind of confused uh so we hung out uh, I wish I could remember this girl's name but um, just, you know, wonderful, tragic stories. And uh, when we finished our coffee, she 
she was the one that said, you know, hey, you know, I realize this isn't really going to go anywhere. I'm not feeling the vibe. You know, it's it's okay. You know, you don't. We can just end it here. And I was like, no, no. Are you hungry? Do you want to go get something to eat? Like it's my treat. And she was like, fuck, really? Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love that. And so you know, I I took her up the street to a. A restaurant called Hamburger Haven, one of my old favorites. I took lots of dates there over the years. It was a funny little neighborhood diner, counter service, little uh, spot, little tables in the back, and it had these orange or like yellow windows, so it had this weird yellow light. And uh, it was one of Robin Williams' favorite spots. There was pictures of him with the staff all over the walls, and uh, he lived, I think. You, you could walk or bike from his house down to the Hamburger Haven. But anyway, I, t- I took her there. We sat in the back and I was like, it's my treat, you know, like get whatever you want. And I remember she got like two drinks, two entrees, and I think two desserts as well. And, and was very nice. Like she asked, you know, do you mind if I get this and this? And I'm like, no, no, it's really, it's, it's on me. And she fucking went for it. And I thought it was really cool that she felt comfortable enough just to fucking get down you know just with this random dude it was fresh and uh again by the end of it uh we said our goodbyes i never saw her again uh but i remember her and i i I hope she's alive and doing well somewhere um but that was that was one of those uh 95 adventures (laughs) um i think around that time too um uh, as a graffiti writer uh somebody i probably fell in and soap took me to a place called the coors yard it was behind the coors distribution building on army street which is now cesar chavez and it was a day spot where you could go during the day and write graffiti however you wanted and pretty much no problem of hassles or cops i guess the owners of the building didn't really care that we were back there and as long as we cleaned up and didn't start fires and shit like that. Um, and that was a, a super good spot for, for years and years and years. And I ended up having a pretty epic um, uh, beef kind of thing with capped at that spot. Um, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, the other spot was uh, Emeryville back then. I would hop on the uh, BART train on the weekends in... Uh, I'd meet up with, usually it was Buku, um, and uh, he'd pick me up at like Ashby Bart or whatever, and we would go paint walls together, and uh, I did that so much that year. It was almost every single weekend I was in the East Bay doing something on the weekends, and then during the week, like, putting in steady work on the streets of San Francisco. Um, I remember, too, Buku... uh, I remember going to his house and meeting his mom, and she was super cool. And I remember him uh, rapping when we would drive around in the car. And I never thought anything of it as far as, like, him being really serious about rapping. It just seemed like a hobby of his, and he would just kind of rap. You know, he I I can't remember if he had instrumental uh, mixtapes or something, but it was just one of those things. We were driving around with Buku. He'd be rapping. And uh, and I think it was all freestyle, too. He was just talking about what was happening. Not long later, 
I found out um, after we had kind of stopped writing together as much, he was really into rapping, and that became like his vocation for years. I think he toured with hieroglyphics, if I remember right. But uh, but that was a, a really, really great time. There was a, a particular wall in Emeryville that um, backed up to some railroad tracks, and we would hit it very, very often. Uh, Joker would often uh, be with us too and doing these big productions. Um, I, and I think it was around that time I went to a rave. Um, yeah, I was, I can't, it might've been, I think it was one of the home base raves in Oakland. The, the heads from back then will remember those, the, the home base there was, it was like an abandoned home depot and it had these just huge cavernous spaces and, they would have uh, multiple rooms of DJs and, you know, the chill room. And it was just fucking madness. I mean, there would literally be, you know, 40,000 people there some nights. And uh, at one of those, uh, some graffiti kids uh, rolled up to me. And I think they were just like, yo, are you giant? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Who are you guys? You guys writers? And it was uh, set and leapt. And they were high as shit, as was I. We were raving. And uh, we hit it off. Um, we, we had mutual friends. Uh, I think I went with them and we got bottles of water and had a chance to talk and maybe kicked it outside a little bit and talked and then went back in and we all danced together. And uh, each one of us had like a real distinctively different dance style from the other. That was a interesting part of the, the rave experience to me was it was like it's not like dancing like you're following steps like a samba or a uh you know uh any of that kind of you know like it's a formal stepping kind of motion um when we were high on ecstasy and acid and all kinds of other stuff dancing was more just this physical response to the sounds that you were hearing. So something, something that was like heavy bass and kind of tribal might make me kind of squat down and stomp my feet with the beat, you know, kind of slowly back and forth, like rocking kind of motion. And whereas some kind of, um, hyper kinetic kind of techno music might incorporate faster foot movements and weird kind of break dancing arm movements um but i think it was like this for a lot of people like myself where we would just be dancing to the music with our eyes closed seeing all kinds of crazy hallucinations behind our eyelids from the acid and stuff and open our eyes and see how we were dancing and kind of be surprised um, by the the motion of our bodies because again we were just responding to the sounds and everybody was kind of doing that so it wasn't uh, I don't know it was it's unlike any other kind of like a like a formal dance program you know it was just all these individuals just moving their bodies to this beat and not really worrying at all about what they look like for the most part, you know, and even dancing with their eyes closed, a lot of them, like myself, I did that often. And of course, there were the circle dancers who were really keenly focused and trying to impress and trying to compete. 
uh, with the other dancers. And that was always a wonderful thing to like take a break from, you know, just the, the experience itself and uh, kind of stop dancing and go get some water and then go and kind of stand at the edge of a circle and watch people get, get loose. You know, I especially love doing that with my personal friends when they would get in the circles and some of them were like my friend Ernesto, um, Ernest, uh, is it Ernest? I guess it's just Ernest <laughs> from Albuquerque. He was one of the best house dancers I've ever seen in my life. Really fucking smooth. There was a particular style of house dancing too that was originated, I think, in San Jose, and you'd see it here and there at the the big raves, among uh, certain kind of really really savvy house style dancers, and uh, I, I obviously can't describe it, but it was just ultra ultra smooth, wonderful spinning, um, all, everything on beat, like perfectly on beat, really really impressive. Uh, and so I stayed in touch with uh, Lept and Set, and uh, we came, we got to be friends. Uh, eventually, they even, we started painting together, and they became part of my crew, which was called AOT, Always on Top. It was a crew that I had started in uh, New Mexico and brought with me to uh, San Francisco, and there was just a few people that I put in it from San Francisco, and Lept and Set were definitely uh, up in there, and they were early they were kind of earlier in their graffiti careers um they were doing mostly throw ups and tags and just starting to learn how to do wild styles and semi wilds and shit like that um but they had a lot of heart and they were up everywhere set especially was up on the east bay like so much just big rooftops and huge um just just big bold badass work with a lot of style um i remember one uh particular home base uh, rave I took my old friend Greg Carroll and uh, you know we were in our mid 20s early 20s then and so we were even at that age kind of the old guys at the uh, the raves because <laughs> the big thing with the rave was there wasn't really an age limit because there wasn't really it wasn't really legal <laughs> so you could have kids there as young as 12 13 really if they had a chaperone with them or whatever you know it was just it was on you know so that by the time you were let's say 23 or 24 you were kind of the the old farts of the of the thing and uh i remember going to one with greg and uh for some reason we hadn't allocated drugs beforehand but knew that we could probably get some at the party i mean that was usually you only had to ask like two or three people and they're like oh yeah my friend's got some hold on um so we were there we were kind of curious about what what drugs were available and, you know who had what and uh i ran into left and set and uh was like hey guys what's up how you doing and they were like oh we're fucking great man we're fucking lit up you know everything's good we got some good drugs and i was like what do you guys got you know can you get us some we d we, we didn't bring anything and they were like oh fuck well yeah we have some we can get you some but they're they're pretty gnarly and and Greg and I looked at each other like, come on, guy, like <laughs> we've been doing this for a long time, man. Don't trip. What do you got? And he was like, well, we a friend of ours makes these things called UFOs, and they're these big ass pills. It was like a a pill for a horse. It was huge. It was like four times the size of a usual ecstasy pill, 
But it had uh, MDMA, speed, and mescaline all mixed up together. And one big fucking pill. And they said it would last for like, you know, 12 hours. And uh, we were just like, well, fuck, that sounds great. You know, I think they were 20 bucks. Um, most pills and stuff at the raves were 20 bucks. Nobody was trying to make a uh, change. <laughs> but everybody had cash. You know, you certainly uh, ATM cards were useless at a rave. Um, so Greg and I pop these UFOs and, uh, they're fucking strong. Like, wow. The mescaline, I don't know how much mescaline they put in this fucking thing, but the, the trippy visuals was on. It was, it was really on. It was almost at times to the point where I couldn't tell if my eyes were open or closed. Um, I remember Greg, uh, stopping me on the dance floor and being like, Hey man, do you see that fucking flying snake? It looks like electricity across the, across the, like the, the roof of the, the, the space, you know? And I'm like, no, I don't see that dude. And he's like, fuck man, I see it clear as day. And I'm like, damn. And then he would say, Oh, well, do you see like, like uh dancing hippopotamuses on the walls and i'm like yeah yeah i'm seeing that they're projecting that homie <laughs> but it was this real funny game of like are we seeing what we're seeing or what the fuck is going on and that would just go on for hours you know and it wasn't really for everybody because you become somewhat uh egoless in that space where you have to just submit to the high and just have fun with it and ride it out um, and I remember specifically uh, that morning at uh, probably just after dawn, probably 7 a.m., uh, Greg and I are pretty tired, but we're still pretty high. And we're like, man, let's try to get out of here before they officially close the rave and everybody leaves at once. You know, let's try to beat the rush. So him and I bounced, you know, just a little early and uh, got to his car and hopped in. And I was in the passenger seat and uh, he just was looking straight ahead and I can tell he was feeling weird. And I was like, what's up, man? And he's like, fuck, dude, it feels like I'm in the ocean, like I'm going up and down with the tide, like my body is like in movement. And I know I'm sitting still. And I was like, fuck, dude, can you drive? And he was like, I probably shouldn't. And I was like, fuck, dude, I'm kind of feeling the same way. And there happened to be a Denny's. Uh, restaurant uh, I shot from where we parked so we decided to walk over to Denny's and uh, get some breakfast and some coffee in us to try to level our bodies out that so we could even drive home and uh, everything was cool we I think we ordered there was barely anybody in the restaurant at all it was no big deal everybody was feeling good the staff was in good spirits but they had no idea what was right next door at the at the rave and sure enough pretty much as soon as greg and i got our food uh big groups of raver kids start showing up and they look fucked up and they've got like you know the makeup's running there's they look like they've been sweating for hours and all their glow sticks are still on and it's just fucking chaos and they start showing up basically by the hundreds <laughs> at the stannies and uh, the staff fucking freaks out and they don't know what to do. And it's just absolute chaos. They were totally understaffed. 
Um, so Greg and I finished our breakfast. We didn't hang out long and dawdle because we knew other people were hungry. So we paid our bill and we, we snuck out of there. Well, you know, there was literally like camps of kids like lying down on the floor of the Denny's in the lobby <laughs> waiting to get seated. It was absolute chaos. And we did get back to his car and uh, he felt good enough to drive and we drove back to the city and uh i remember he came in to the apartment for a little bit and we talked for maybe an hour or so it's probably about 9 a.m by then and uh then he split and i was up for maybe another hour before i was able to crash out because those ufos i don't know how much speed was in them but we acknowledged we were wide awake for way too long and uh you know, but it was super fun. I had a great adventure. Um, right around the summertime of that year, uh, I started seeing this girl that I had a terrible crush on and just thought there would be no way in hell I would ever have a chance with her. But I liked her and respected her and was always super friendly. She, uh, she worked at uh, Flax Art Supplies, and uh, it's where I would get my supplies for things skateboards. And sometimes, you know, if I needed a bunch of stuff, one of the owners would uh, drive me down to Flax and pay for everything with the company card, get me whatever I needed. And uh, I remember it w especially uh, Fish, Don Fisher, one of the, the three Think owners, uh, he had a crush on the same girl. And uh, so sometimes he would just be bored, I think, <laughs> at think, and come into the art department and be like, hey, Mike, do you uh, happen to need anything from Flax? And I'd be like, mm, I don't think so. And he'd be like, you sure? There's not anything. And I'd be like, I could get some more tracing paper, I guess. And he'd be like, "All right, well, let's go over there, man. Let's 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 keep you stocked up." And it was kind of a unnecessary trips, but I knew what he was after. He just wanted to go flirt with this girl, and uh, and you know, admittedly, I did too. But I wasn't. He he would like literally flirt with her, and she was so cute. Pretty much every dude flirted with her, and she was at work, and I thought that was kind of shitty to like corner a girl where she's working trying to flirt with her when she should be working you know um i've always thought that was shitty but whatever i would but i would see her and she would strike up a conversation with me and wanted to talk to me and i was just you know being friendly and was stoked for the attention she was fucking gorgeous and, you know, like at the art supply store, like the fucking cute art girl. And she was crazy talented herself and was, I think, going to school at the time. And uh, that was like, you know, kind of because I got to San Francisco in 93. So it had probably been maybe a year, maybe a year and a half from when I first met her at Flax to her I don't remember I don't remember how it went down but I think she had expressed interest in me as a bit more than a friend like kind of had a crush on me or some shit and I was just like fuck yeah I, I have the same on you and I must admit to it I thought she was into girls 
there were a lot of girls, obviously, in San Francisco that were lesbians, and it was really common as, for me especially to, like, f have a crush on a gay girl. Sometimes they, they were really just had a cool style that the straight girls didn't have, and for some reason I really dug it. I don't know. But in any, in any case, like, she, uh, yeah, she kind of approached me, and... Uh, I remember I would hang out in her uh, house. She'd invite me over because she was going to art school. So she had a lot of like art stuff that she had to do as homework. And uh, she lived on, uh, I think it was Cole Street near Haight. And it happened to be the same house that uh, Charles Manson lived in for a while. I'm not sure how long. Uh, which was kind of crazy. Uh, just the vibe. I'd heard so much, you know mythological stories about Charles Manson and to be in this house that he lived in, you know, it was, I, I, you know, maybe I was psyching myself out, but I felt like I could, I could feel, feel the mojo and, uh, where her, uh, art little room was, was in a, a, a little room built out of the, uh, the basement garage and it had the heater in it and some little sofas and a big art table and uh, I think she had told me that that's where Charlie uh, would sleep, was in this little funky kind of closet room in the garage, in the basement. And uh, it was like the same room that I would kick it in. I, I remember many nights going over there and um, falling asleep on her couch while she painted into the night. And then she would wake me up and we would go up into her room and uh, we would make love and it was fucking cool and i remember she had these really cool different positions that i hadn't ever explored um she was quite f flexible <laughs> and uh i just remember being so uh almost like uh wayne's world like feeling so not worthy because she was just she was wanted by so many guys that i knew and uh and for some reason, she, she chose to hang out with me. Eventually, um, I think she was living with a girl that had a crush on her. And they started hooking up. And they really fell in love. And uh, she had to let me go so she could be with her roommate. And I was fine with it. I, I, I think from the start, thought it was going to be a temporary thing. And I was just more than happy to go along for the ride. And, you know, if she wanted to hook up, I was super, super down, you know, but always felt like it was a, a real privilege to hang out with her. I remember too, uh, we would go to club deluxe on Haight street, just down the street from her house on Sundays, I believe Sunday evenings. And the owner of the bar would play uh, Sinatra songs. He would sing to a, a full band. And a lot of the people that were into the swing scene, like uh, dressing like they're from the 19, you know, like 40s, I would imagine. Uh, almost like costume. But uh, really sharp, really classy guys and the girls. And uh, my girl was one of them too. And she would wear these like... Um, china doll dresses that she would get in chinatown she had this really thin frame and those dresses fit her so good and she looked right out of an old movie 
she would do her hair up. It would take her like an hour to do her hair and the whole nine. And I would be rolling with her in like jeans and vans and a hoodie, dirty, holding my skateboard, just, you know, being myself. And I remember her swing friends really didn't care for me because I, I didn't participate in their scene or whatever. Or they might have even been a bit jealous that I was with her um, when a lot of those guys, I'm sure, wanted to be with her. I, I, God, I'm, I know it. Uh, but, I, you know, also I remember they hearkened back to a lot of the way of thinking about politics in the world and race relations from the 1940s in that scene and I was surprised to find many of them were quite racist the uh, white people in that scene and it, it really left a bad taste in my mouth and I, I think eventually um, their kind of like uh, racist sense of humor rubbed my girl wrong too because she was i think half mexican half french and she didn't really look mexican at all uh but they would talk shit about mexicans too you know and i was just like man fuck these people i wanted to jack them you know <laughs> but uh but yeah you know that was another one of those kind of short romances um that was i guess kind of common in my life in that era of just these really incredible women that taught me so much and brought uh, so much uh, new uh, experience to my life. Uh, I, it was that year, too, I guess, that I went to Japan for the first time with uh, Tribal Clothing. Uh, Bobby, the owner of Tribal, hit me up and was like, we're going back to Japan and we'd like to take you... Uh, and some other people along and I was like fuck yeah dude let's fucking do it I think all I had to do was meet them in uh, Los Angeles and then we flew from there but it was me and Bob and uh, Carl who was a co-owner of Tribal at the time and this uh, dude we called Donger I don't know if anybody calls him that anymore <laughs> but his name's Ken Lu, and he's a super sick skateboarder and this guy uh, John Reeves another really awesome skateboarder um, and myself and Zodak, the graffiti artist and DJ, uh, and I mean, fuck Zodak does all kinds of shit, but that was fucking epic. It was my first time in Japan. Uh, everything was taken care of. The hotels were cool. We were doing all these different parties. There was walls set up for us, man, fucking Japan. It was such a, uh, such a culture shock. You know, I, I, one of the f first things I remember was just being on a crowded corner and at six foot four, being able to see over everybody's heads. It seemed like all the, the Japanese people were about the same height with exactly the same black hair. And uh, it was just one of those times when I was so obviously not in my element, you know, and uh, really cool. I remember years later being in japan and seeing a uh, another tall american guy uh about two blocks up and we got eye contact and waved at each other <laughs> over this kind of like a sea of black hair uh 
yeah it's 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 such a, a trip there and the the our japanese hosts were so fucking cool and took us to all the cool spots um i remember uh we went to tribal had a party i believe it was in yokohama and it was like a hip-hop event you know everybody was going off uh you know big promotion for tribal and uh the whole time i was there i was not really trying to like get laid but i really did want to interact with japanese girls and meet some and talk to some and get the vibe you know and uh so i was being friendly and uh i met this girl named shiori s-h-i-o-r-i and it sounded so much like Shorty. I, I think I just started calling her Shorty. And she thought that was cute. And I think I explained to her what Shorty meant. And she thought that was fitting. Um, but uh, Shiori, uh, I don't know. She just liked me. And we would kick it. And we sat next to each other at the bar. And I remember uh, somebody had told her they call me Kyojin. Which basically means giant in uh in japanese i think there's a baseball team called the kyojins the giants and uh so she <laughs> i remember she would go uh kyojin biru biru which was beer beer you know but i think she was saying it like biru and uh i would say yeah 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 and she the way she said heineken heineken and i just things i remember the way she said heineken was so cute <laughs> but she uh she drank me under the table she, <laughs> she was like five foot two and she must have killed 10 bottles of heineken to my like four by the end of the night but wasn't visibly drunk or out of control at all just could fucking drink and i was like damn learning you know these people can fucking get down and uh way way more than i can <laughs> it was a it was a really cool surprise uh and i remember that night uh i invited her back to my apartment or my uh hotel room i should say and uh my buddies had warned me beforehand uh the Amer some of the american guys that like if you want to hook up with a japanese girl like yeah, you, they're gonna say no like they kind of have to say no to any advancement because culturally it's kind of forbidden for them to mix with foreigners so just i don't know just as a bottom line you know if you're like hey do you want to come back to the hotel with me do you want to have sex they'll say no but then they'll come with you it's really fucking confusing so they'll say no to each suggestion you might have, but then move into the suggestion. Now, I can't say this is the same for, for everybody. This is just some of the experience of my friends that had gone through Japan. And, uh, you know, it was just one of those things where, you know, they're going to say no, but you've got to kind of push ahead. And as an American myself, as soon as a girl says no, I back off. I mean, I don't care what culture differences there are. 
no matter where I go, I feel like I'm an American and I should be acting like an American and that's not cool. If a girl says no, that's the end of it. Um, so, you know, I had to... I, I think the deal with Shiori was she was stuck in Yokohama and didn't live there and needed to wait until the first train at like 5.30 in the morning for her to be able to get back to her hometown. And uh, she was going to end up having to like crash at the uh, train station. And I think I was able just to assure her that I wasn't trying to like have sex with her or do anything weird. And she did end up coming back to my hotel room for a few hours. And I remember she slipped out. We did snuggle a little bit. We didn't kiss at all. It was nothing crazy. I was trying to be hella respectful. She was nice. Um, but I did tell her that like the, the next night I was going to be in Tokyo doing a similar party and it would be great to see her, but wasn't expecting to see her at all. Um, so sure enough, the next night we're in Tokyo, we're fucking partying, uh, not too late into the evening. There's Shiori. And I'm like, oh, fuck rad what are you doing here because i knew she lived pretty far from there and she's just like i wanted to come and check out the hip-hop and hang out with you guys again you know you're gonna go back to the states soon and this is my only chance and i was like fresh so again we hung out she drank crazy amounts of beer <laughs> and uh i think we went to denny's that night and we had a fucking great time and uh she stayed over in the hotel room again, but again, nothing happened. Totally cool. Didn't want to cross any lines. Didn't want to bum her out. Um, and then the next day she split at the train station and I never saw her again. Um, but I did correspond with her for a bit. I would send her, uh, special little boxes of cool stuff from America. Um, and after just a few months of doing that, I'd send her maybe three packages. Uh, the distributor that Tribal worked at in uh, Japan, who was our host when we were there, he contacted me directly and was just like, hey man, I know you really like Shiori, but it, it's been a big fucking mess for her since she hung out with you because her family freaked out and she's a school teacher and they threatened to fire her from her school because she was hanging out with you and you keep sending her these gifts and they're all like he wouldn't be sending gifts if they hadn't had sex and we hadn't had sex and it was just a big mess for her so I stopped sending him uh, I stopped sending her the packages and but you know I I I, I can still picture her in my mind and she was rad and I hit her up on graffiti walls here and there hoping that she might see that shit too um, but that trip to Japan was fucking that was just so epic I had such a great time I bought all kinds of electronics and shit god damn it was fun and it was rad to watch uh, uh, Kien and John Reeves fucking skate Tokyo getting loose on rails and shit that was, that was super super rad and I think might have been might have been pretty soon after that. Um, I was back in San Diego visiting again and hanging out with the tribal guys. And uh, that guy Carl, that was a co-owner of Tribal, 
uh, every time I would go to San Diego, he'd have a bag of mushrooms waiting for us. He knew I was always down to eat mushrooms with him, and I guess not a lot of people were around that were down. And uh, we would always do it together. And I remember one night we were super shroomed, and we had to get from uh, like downtown San Diego out to Imperial Beach, real far south. And uh, it was crazy foggy. Like I couldn't see 10 feet in front of the car. And I remember uh, he was just blazing down it. I think he had fog lights on his Jeep, and he knew the road was dead straight and wasn't worried about it, worried about hitting another car or something in the fog. But I remember just being so fucking terrified and tripping so hard. Um, But looking over at him, and he was just smiling, having a good time, and it would would (laughs) calm me down. But that was... That was such a fun part of uh, coming to San Diego, and uh, of course, too, this the San Diego had some fucking sick raves too. I remember uh, that year going to one with my buddy Flame and uh, his girlfriend Jenny, and uh, DJ Quark was playing, and he was a friend of theirs, and he was so good. It was in like a a big like it was almost like a a, a warehouse or a hangar for airplanes. It was super super big. And it was just out kind of in the middle of nowhere, which seemed like it was probably somebody's big commercial property. But where you had to park was kind of far from the rave, and you kind of couldn't hear it when you parked. So it was like, fuck, or did we get ripped off? You know, which happens sometimes. You'd pay to go to a rave, and you'd get to the spot, and be nothing happening. Or the cops had already come, and it had already been shut down, you know. Um, but that night, it was, it was cool. I remember we, we eventually kind of we were creeping through the woods and started to hear the bass and we're like okay okay it's got to be over here and we got there and there was probably three or four hundred people it wasn't a huge rave but super super fun i think that same trip too i went to my first rave in balboa park um it was just like uh central park in san diego you know like like new york central park it's like the the big main uh civic park um super big and a lot of like little sneaky spots for somebody if they had a generator and a pickup truck and some turntables could get a rave popping pretty quick even where i uh practice archery now on sundays at the rube powell archery range in balboa park uh i remember going to raves under the bridge there um so back to san francisco 95 um mentioned earlier that there were a lot of female friends of mine and just girls in general that were there to kind of explore their sexuality and uh be around more lesbians and bisexual people and queer folk of all sorts and uh some of i forget how it was it was like one of the girls in my group of friends had befriended this group of uh lesbian ladies some of whom were real like dykes like what i would consider kind of classic dykes like real butchy um kind of i don't know just like not not femme (laughs) and uh they usually didn't want uh straight people around period especially dudes uh just period like if they were throwing up house party you know if it was a dyke party you kind of knew they weren't trying to be friendly to you if you wanted to try to crash their party as a straight guy uh but because i was 
friends with mutual friends, I was able to go to some of these parties. And I remember, uh, you know, if I was able to gain their confidence, they would start talking to me as like a young man, you know, maybe 23 years old or how I I guess I would have been 23 then. Yeah. And uh, just being like, all right, straight guy, uh, you don't know shit. (laughs) Uh, You ain't shit. You know, the way that we fuck, we get each other off way better than you can with your fucking dick. You know, you ain't shit. And I would be humble and just be like, agreed. I don't know shit. Teach me. You know, take a straight guy under your wing. You know, it's like an experiment. You know, don't don't just, you know, bitch at me about my lack of knowledge, maybe. You know, school me. And I remember this one lady in particular, she just uh, stuck her fingers out, you know, in her hand and just was like, you know, your dick is just like this one long finger, right? It just stays straight. It can't bend. It can't do anything, really. It's just this stiff thing. But fingers can curve, and you can put fingers together to make different shapes, and you can fit a whole hand in some people, and, you know, so don't think your dick is all that i remember they taught me how to uh find the g-spot look for you know feel around for the ridges and uh you know how to manipulate a clitoris uh you know different ways of applying pressure and different types of pressure and just i don't know all kinds of stuff and even uh you know toys vibrators dildos you know, they taught me not to be afraid of uh, having a girlfriend bring that stuff into the bed because, again, it's it's not a substitute for your dick. It's just something extra and should be seen that way and should be seen as, like, a way to help women really get the fuck off, you know, not just some bullshit. And uh, I was... Man, I, it, it's it's kind of the education that I I figured all men were having conversations like that at some point with women about sp- specifics and uh, variation and stuff like that. And as I've gotten older, I realized m- most men have never had those conversations, <laughs> and it's only made me feel really really lucky that I had those early on. And uh, I remember there was this one girl, uh, Jessica that was part of our little crew and she was kind of this uh big hippie girl she was cute i thought she was really cute um she wasn't like beautiful or you know anything like that but i thought she was cute she had a way about her and uh but we were just platonic friends and it you know it was just one of those things she was cool i always kind of felt like if i asked her if she wanted to have sex with me she'd probably say yes and I remember one of the dyke parties, uh, I think I was going down the stairs and she was going up the stairs and I stopped her and I was just like, hey, at the end of the party, do you want to come home with me? And she was super surprised, I remember, but immediately was like, yeah, yeah, I'd love that. And I was like, fuck yeah, so make sure, you know, you don't leave without me and I'll make sure I do the same. And uh, sure enough, at the end of the night, we were looking for each other. And I, I took her home, and uh, we 
fucked like crazy. It was super fun. Again, she had some techniques and things I'd never run into before. But it, I remember it being really casual, like very friendly, not super romantic. I remember was laughing a lot at kind of like, what the fuck are we doing? Kind of. <laughs> um, but it was super fun. And uh, after that, when we would hang out with our group of friends, they would laugh at us because they'd see us looking at each other like we were remembering that hot night that we had together. But that was the only time I think we ever we ever hooked up. Um, but it was one of those first occasions when it was very, like I say, kind of casual, like friendly, um, which was kind of, I guess, more the mode when we were ravers. Um, for the most part, it was this like uh, kind of casual way of just kind of deepening our connection and getting closer to each other when we were high. But it wasn't uh, overhandedly sexual or uh, power dynamic or anything like that. It's just real, real cool. Um, oh, yeah. So I, I, I have notes written out here in front of me. So another one from the personal ads. Um, I had, there was a girl that I went out on a date with. Her name was Marily. Like Marily, Marily, Marily. Um, and she, uh, she answered one of my ads in the personals and we met up at a bar near her house and they had a shuffleboard, the little, uh, metal round, uh, discs on a smooth wood surface and you just push the little disc down the way and you use like cornstarch or something to keep the uh, the surface uh, so the the little disc will slide nice. It's fun. And uh, it was her game. Uh, she was really fucking good at it. And on our first date, uh, she wanted to play, and I think I beat her every time. And uh, she was very she was rather surprised, <laughs> but uh, she was stoked. And when we left the bar that night, uh, I walked her back to her apartment and uh, we made out at the door and uh, we're grabbing each other under shirts and stuff. And it was getting really, really hot. And uh, she was like, do you want to come up? And I was like, nah, let's let's hold off. Like, I'm in no hurry. I'm going to go home, but I'd love to see you again as soon as possible. And she was like, cool. So I went home. And maybe just like two days later, she called and was like, uh, hey, I'd love to see you again. You know, are you free tonight? And I was. And uh, I remember she was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I just want to pick up where we left off. And she was like, perfect. So sure enough, I get to the apartment building. She comes downstairs, meets me at the door. We start making out. And we just start making out all the way up the stairs to her apartment and fucking had a good ass time and I remember it later that evening she admitted to me that um, she had decided after I had beaten her uh, the the last game of shuffleboard that she was going to fuck me and I always think that's funny like to find out what it was that you did that made them think I'm down because it's often not at all what I would think, <laughs> you know, often it was stuff that 
I kind of didn't have a lot of control over, but somehow impressed them. And uh, I just remember that being a really funny detail that as soon as I beat her at shuffleboard, she was like, fuck, I, I want to fuck this guy. He's killing me at my own game. And uh, But the deal with her was uh, I could only see her on Wednesdays. She made this pretty clear right off the start um, for whatever reason. I don't even know if I asked her what the Wednesdays was about, but she would only see me on Wednesdays. I suspected she had boyfriends for other days of the week. And I was like her skater boyfriend. And I suspected she had like a corporate boyfriend because she worked for William Sonoma and she wore like a business, like women's business suits and heels to work, looked super, super sharp and professional. And I, of course, was still hoodies and vans and jeans and skateboard, like dirty fucking downtown kid, you know. Uh, but she liked that. And I remember I would have to call her on Monday to arrange the date for Wednesday. And, uh, oh, yeah, that's an interesting detail from earlier in the, this con- uh, podcast. I'll get to that. So, um, so yeah, I was seeing her earlier. So, m- Marilee, uh, I basically what would happen was I would show up at her place on Wednesdays at a certain time, and she would have something planned for us. I, I didn't have to do any planning. And often it was planning of a sexual nature. So, one time I remember showing up, and she was like, um, I'm going to go to the bar and go out, but do you want to take a bath first? And I was like, huh, really? Like, just take a bath right now? And she was like, yeah, yeah. You want to take a bath with me? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. And so we go into the bathroom, and she had already set up like 30 fucking candles, and they were all lit, and the bath was already steaming. It was made. And she had some soft music playing. And I was just like, no fucking way, dude. This is fresh. And she took all my clothes off, put me in the bath, gave me a massage. And it was just so fucking nice. And then, you know, after that, we went to her bed and we had sex for hours. And I remember at the, you know, when I was about ready to go to sleep, I was like, hey, weren't we supposed to go out tonight? And she was just like, oh, fuck that. This was way better. (laughs) And I agreed. But it was fun that way. She would have these uh, scenarios kind of worked out. Um, I remember one time I got over there and she was like, lie back. I want to give you a blowjob. And I was like, fucking right on. Like, just inside the door. Like, this is fresh. God bless this girl. And she had read in, like, Vogue magazine, she told me later that night, uh, about putting menthol gel in her mouth and then blowing me and that it would feel good and it felt so fucking good the menthol gel was like i don't know it's a crazy feeling just like a menthol cigarette but she had the gel in her mouth while she was blowing me so it just felt fucking crazy i remember it was getting all over my balls and it was fucking nuts but that was so fun she was oh man i was fucking spoiled i don't know what her deal was but, uh, so tracking back, I would, you know, would call her on Mondays. So the night that, I think it was the night that I had, uh, Sylvia and her friend Alexandra over and there was kind of the almost threesome, um, that was like a Sunday and I was just like a little, 
I don't know, I kind of felt like I needed a little bit of a break sexually because it was kind of a frustrating situation. So I neglected to call Marilee on that Monday, uh, thinking I could just call her Tuesday or Wednesday and hook up for the next week or something. But I called, she didn't answer, and I left a message. Hey, you know, sorry I didn't call Monday. I'd love to hang out Wednesday or maybe the next week if you're available. Just give me a call back. Didn't hear back from her. Next day, hit her up. Hey, I wouldn't mind hanging out tonight if you're still free. I know it's usually our night. Let me know. Didn't hear back. So then third time I called her like a few days later, it was just like a, I guess I blew it. Um, Sorry, you're so cool and you were so fun, but I get it. I'm probably cut. No hard feelings. Take care. And that was that. And I saw her quite a few many months later. Um, just on the street and I was actually with my friend Greg at the time again and uh, I had told him all about her and I saw her and I, I pointed at her you know pretty openly uh, to show him and she happened to look across the street and see me pointing right at her and she got really kind of flustered and turned around and walked the, the other way really fast and uh, I kind of felt bad because we didn't really like end badly I, I might have been a thing where she didn't want the other people in her life to know about me, which was fine. But yeah, that was a that was a bizarre. Uh, that was some more of that bizarre fucking uh, 1995 shit. You doing the goddamn personal ads? I can't even imagine what that would be like these days. Um, let's see. So I'm gonna tell one more story. I still have a whole bunch of stuff left from 95 but I'll, I'll end with this last one um i think it was in the summer maybe around august of 95 my friend john came out from new mexico uh john had become a big distributor of uh like mdma some speed uh lsd uh I think he also did uh, the micro dots, all kinds of stuff. And he, he would often have to go up to San Francisco to uh, buy in quantity. And uh, sometimes, um, like this one time I can remember in particular, he wanted to be able to use my apartment as a home base because he was going to have to go and stay with the family, in quotes, um, who made the best LSD at the time. Uh, the family's pretty famous in LSD circles and they're that's really what they're called the family and uh, He wasn't so sure how many days he would need with the family for them to uh, basically check him check his constitution and his honesty and you know, maybe do a background check of sorts before they sold him quantities and uh, so it was kind of he couldn't really do a hotel because he might be with the family for a week or two or maybe just a day he he kind of didn't know so it was easier to just use my apartment as a, a home base uh on those occasions and uh i remember one that this occasion in 95 if i remember it correctly uh he was away for almost a full week if i remember right and i kept expecting to come home i think he had a key to my apartment I kept expecting to come home after work and he would be there, you know, and everything would be fine. And day after day, he wasn't there. 
and I knew what he was doing, so I was definitely worried about him. Um, but he seemed to know what he was doing. So, and he'd been doing it for a while and, uh, all the stuff he got was always really, really good quality. So, uh, after a few days, maybe a week, he's there and I'm like, thank God, how you doing, man? Mission successful. And he showed me he had these, uh, big kind of oversized Ziploc, uh, plastic clear bags full of, uh, what looked like, uh, kind of big sheets of watercolor paper and they were wet. And there were, it was quite a good stack inside this big bag. And uh, he explained that the LSD was still wet in the bag and on the paper. And uh, that we needed to very, very carefully dry it so that he could transport it back to New Mexico. And so I remember I had a little clothesline in my apartment. And uh, we would we hung up the, uh, the LSD. I, I think he used... Uh, my uh ki- my uh dishwashing gloves the rubber gloves to handle the paper because it was still wet and like you know lsd will absorb through your skin really really easy and the, the bag was just so wet with lsd and the paper that y- you know we could have gotten uh you know psychotic doses really really easy it was pretty fucking dangerous uh, but we let them dry. I think it only took overnight for them to dry. And the next day, he uh, cut them down. So the, the raw sheets of, officially it's blotter paper. It's a lot like watercolor paper. Uh, it has a deckled edge. It's like a, a rough kind of ripped edge. And uh, John would cut the, those kind of deckled edges off the edges of the sheets um, so that the cut down sheets were down to like whole uh, centimeters in dimension because I think a single hit of acid is a single centimeter square. So he was just trying to get them straightened up and kind of smaller, a little bit easier for transportation because all he did was put them in a bag, maybe even the same bag, um, and uh, tape it down to his stomach and uh, fly southwest back to New Mexico with literally could be hundreds of thousands of hits of acid on him, literally. Uh, and so he would leave the, the strips of cut off deckled edge uh, to me, and I'd have all these really long strips, some of them 15 inches long, and maybe, like I say, just a centimeter or two wide, Um, But I had lots and lots of them. And I would rip them off into little, basically, centimeter square hits. And uh, I always had it. I had had so many. I had hundreds of hits. And I didn't pay for any of it. Uh, Again, it was kind of a gift from John for letting him uh, use my apartment, uh, you know, to take care of his business. Granted, if the feds had kicked down my door, I would have gone to federal prison with John just probably just as much shit as him, even though I had very, very little to do with it. But I, I knew what the fuck was going on. And he did eventually do uh, well over 10 years, I think, combined uh, federal uh, time. Uh, but uh, on this occasion, you know, I just, everything was fine. He went back home. No big deal. And I had tons and tons of this acid. So I would keep the little, uh, the little hits in uh, a 35-millimeter film container and if anybody 
uh, caught wind that I had it and asked me about it, I would give them hits for free and often ask them if they wanted to do them right now and I would do them with them because I was super down. So through those years, let's say 95 and 96, I was doing LSD uh, by myself every single Sunday, Um, sometimes up to like, uh, I remember one time I ate uh, six four-way hits. So basically what that means is some blotters were dipped over and over and over so that the potency of an individual centimeter square hit would be much, much more than usual. Um, Sometimes, you know, like these four ways where it would be four times the usual. And I kind of accidentally ate six of those. I thought I only ate three, but, you know, things happen. And I tripped for a few days. Um, Went to think skateboards, no big deal. Was able to take care of business. (laughs) That was pretty common at the time. Um, But, uh... That was, that was, uh, yeah, that was some crazy shit (laughs) dealing with that much acid and that much danger. Um, and I think I'll end it right there for now. Uh, I've still got a whole bunch of shit to do from 95, but, uh, that's a good place to stop. Um, thanks for listening as usual. I appreciate it.